Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the penultimate class and the final week of Unfinished Tales. Uh, this has been uh, a really long, fun journey, and I don't want it to end, but we're almost there. Um, before we start, a couple of announcements I want to make first and most urgently. Uh, don't forget that tomorrow, the last session of the class, is one of uh, the special bonus sessions in the Europe-friendly time. Though, you know, as Yana reminded me today on Facebook, thanks to Daylight Savings Time, uh, class is starting right now in, 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 in Europe at, at 1.30 in the morning instead of 2.30 in the morning. I mean, Yana, what are you going to do after class? That's what I want to know. But anyhow... Um, <laughs> with all that extra time you've now gained. But anyway, yeah, we'll be going at 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern uh, uh, Eastern Daylight Time. So uh, uh, it will be uh, it'll be even earlier, only 8 p.m., Yana, so how about that? Um, anyway, so as I say, 4 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow will be our final class. So we will um, talk about that. Um, I'm not even going to deceive myself into thinking we're going to get to the Palantiri tonight, um, since I didn't get to the Astari at all last time, so we're going to do the Wizards tonight, and uh, tomorrow's class we're going to do the uh, the Palantiri, but we're also going to do um, Q&A, so any questions that you guys have, anything you've been saving up, uh, make sure that you uh, email them to me, or you can, uh, po- the easiest thing for you to do is to email them to me, but you can post them on my social media, you can, um, you can wait and ask me the question during the session if you'd like to, any of those things. Um, I am sending you now the link to tomorrow's session, uh, in case you haven't, uh, you don't have that, that's, again, that's the session for tomorrow at 4pm. So, that will be our final wrap-up of, um, our final wrap-up of, uh, of Unfinished Tales. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, that's the first and most immediate announcement. Uh, now, the second announcement, not exactly an announcement so much as a confirmation. You guys ha- will have uh, all heard, I don't doubt by now, that our next uh, book officially is Ender's Game at last. Uh, having come so close two times, Ender's Game has finally won the election. Uh, so we're going to be doing Ender's Game. And just to clarify, a couple of people have been asking me this, because um, I know, of course, there are, there are a number of books in sort of the Ender's Game series. Um, we are, we're talking about the first book, just Ender's Game. Um, it is, of course, a good deal shorter than the books we've been reading. It's a good deal shorter than Unfinished Tales or The Return of the King, uh, so we're going to spend less time on it. I mean, it will be a, a much shorter class. These classes, you know, the, the fact that we've had two books which have required, you know, 10 to 13 classes each at, by at the end of the day is not necessarily an indication of how I plan for all of these classes to go. It's just a reflection of which books happen to have been elected. Um, so, um, as you can see, I was none too uh, none too conservative in in, in uh, budgeting for my uh, my my course time allotments here uh, for uh, for unfinished tales. We're barely going to squeak through. Um, so anyway, so we're gonna um, we're gonna do pro- I, we're going to do probably five I think episodes in in the end for Ender's Game which means we'll be having another election fairly soon uh, into the class. The class is going to be starting during the first week of April. Um, so if I'm remembering correctly, that means April 1st is the date of the first class. So it will not be a joke. It will not be a, it will not be a, 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 a you know, a, a deception. It will be a, a genuine thing, our first class on Ender's Game. Um, and then we'll be studying it basically for the month of April. 
and will be done near the beginning of May. So that is the uh, medium-range plan uh, for the Mythgard Academy classes. The third thing that I wanted to just tell you about is um, uh, we have not yet announced the summer courses for the Mythgard Institute, our regular uh, courses, um, but they're going to be coming out very soon. I, I hope to be able to make those announcements, uh, which are, you know, to be able to uh, post those publicly in the next couple of days, but I can give you a kind of sneak peek into what our classes are going to be. Um, Oh, Annie, no, there's not a webpage yet for Ender's Game. That There will be soon, though. I, I hope that we'll, ha- we'll have that by the end of the week, and I'll certainly be posting that so you can see sort of the breakdown of things. Good question. Um, anyway, so the, the three classes, the three, uh, the, the three classes will be running through the Mythgard Institute. I'm going to be continuing my Chaucer class. I'm going to teach a class on Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Um, you, uh, and, and really, you know... Chaucer is just uh, uh, more fun than any author I know. I'm so looking forward to doing my Canterbury Tales class. I've been doing Chaucer's early works this semester, and that's been really great, and I'm really looking forward to doing the Canterbury Tales next semester. So I'm going to be teaching my Canterbury Tales class. Um, uh, Dr. Amy Sturgis is doing her Harry Potter class. Dr. Sturgis is the very first person ever to have taught a university course on Harry Potter, like in the world. Her Harry Potter class was the first one ever. Uh, and uh, also, the first Harry Potter class taught Mythgard, and she is teaching it again. She hasn't taught it in three years, uh, but she's teaching that. Um, so uh, anyway, we're going to be um, that. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited to uh, to see that course again. And then our third class is going to be a class by a new Mythgard instructor, another wonderful Tolkien scholar who is joining us. And this is Robin Ann Reed, who's been uh, she's she's been so involved in so many things uh, in Tolkien scholarship. She's a wonderful, not only a wonderful scholar herself, but a wonderful wonderful facilitator of scholarship. She has a really great online Tolkien scholarship project going and she is um, she has been coordinating uh, the Tolkien uh, conference at uh, Kalamazoo over the last few years. Um, she's been really great. And um, she's teaching a class on the Lord of the Rings which focuses on the 20th century phenomenon both leading up to it and after it. Both the reader's response to it uh, and, uh, and sort of a cultural studies approach to the Lord of the Rings looking at uh, the both the immediate impacts on the Lord of the Rings and the immediate impact of the Lord of the Rings, not only on English and American society, but on other societies as it looking at its translation history and the role that it has played internationally, culturally. It should be a really cool, fascinating uh, class. Yes, Chaz. Robin Reed of Texas A&M at Commerce fame. Exactly. Um, so uh, uh, Robin is great. You know, one of the one of the things Tolkien studies. Um, you know, uh, starting with with Tom Shippey and and others, you know, Tolkien studies has been dominated by medievalists pretty much since its inception, and that's not shocking, of course, given all of the medieval stuff that Tolkien loved, and there's so many things that Tolkien that, that medievalists get excited about when they see it in Tolkien that you know, 20th century uh, 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 scholars, that is to say, scholars of 20th century literature don't get nearly as excited about. Um, and so it has always made sense to me that medievalists would be more excited about Tolkien than people who study other 20th century authors. Um, Robin Reed is one of the best schol- Tolkien scholars that I know um, who really deals with Tolkien as a 20th century phenomenon. Um, you know, that is that is her field. She's not approaching it from a medieval point of view. Um, and that's uh, that should be that should be really cool. So that's a very different kind of class. It'll be, you know, studying the Lord of the Rings, um, you know, which I assume that most of you are tolerably familiar with, um, but it, it will be a really interesting and different uh, look at it. Um, 
Uh, Chasno, uh, Verona Flieger's not teaching a class this semester. She's not teaching a course with us this summer, but she'll be back again in the fall. She's designing a brand new Tolkien class uh, in the fall, where she's going to be looking at a bunch of the, uh, looking at especially sort of the frames of Tolkien stories, looking at the, the stories in which Tolkien makes use of a frame mechanism, things like the Notion Club papers and stuff like that. It's going to be really cool. Um, uh, and actually, this is a brand new class that she's never taught before that she's designing for the fall semester. So, um, anyway, um, let's see. Brian is asking, do I mean a more more of a more of an along the beam kind of an approach? Not well, no, not exactly. This is more of a looking at the well. It's not just looking at the beam. In some ways, one way to characterize what I believe uh, Professor Reed is going to be doing in that class. Um, is, in, in essence, a third thing. That is, you know, I've been talking about looking at the beam and looking along the beam, of course, borrowing C.S. Lewis's language uh, from his essay that I talked about at the beginning of, the, of, of this class. Um, what Professor Reed is going to be doing is, a sense, is, in a sense, looking sort of parallel to the beam. That is, looking at what the beam does <laughs> to when it strikes the floor, um, looking at the impact, what it illuminates around it, uh, and the kind of impact that it has on the things that it strikes. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about Tolkien being the father of the fantasy genre. Well, what does that mean? How did that happen? Um, what kind of impact did Tolkien actually have? People say often, flippantly, I've said flippantly many times before, things like, um, oh, you know, to uh, Tolkien uh, was just, you know, had this, a huge impact on millions of readers. Well, what impact? How? Um, and, 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 and she's going to go further to say, what kind of impact did it have on people in, in totally different cultures? You know, how, how are other cultures um, who are translating it into other languages, you know, how are they interacting uh, with the texts? And, you know, how are they interacting differently? So anyway, um, that's, um, I, you know, it, what I am really excited about by this class is that uh, people are going get, to get a chance to, to study really carefully and think about carefully uh, the kind of thing that a lot of people just sort of wave their hands at generally. Um, so I think that it's really, it, it, it should be, it should be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, yeah, good. Um, all right, well, let's, uh, let's start, I don't want to I don't, want, I don't want to lose too much time because we do. I don't actually want to talk about like wizards and stuff tonight. So, uh, but those and that's the end of my announcements. Um, so let's go on and talk about the Istari. So, I want to begin with the blue wizards because that's where people always start. That is the questions that that whenever I get questions about the wizards, people always want to talk about the blue wizards first. So I thought I would just begin with kind of condensing everything that we know about the blue wizards. And the other reason that I wanted to do this is that I think by looking at the stuff on the blue wizards, which is relatively brief, um, all of it, uh, we can see a kind of pattern, I think, that, um, that I think will be interesting in kind of trying to put together all of the different materials that we get here. Because, of course, in this chapter on the Astari, we get, as we've gotten in other places, most notably in the, the, the Galadriel and Celeborn chapter, um, a collection of different texts that come in at different times. That is to say, we, we're not just getting, you know, a, an extra story or, or something that Tolkien has written or something that he began and didn't finish, but we're, we're given a little glimpse of how his thought went on to, 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 to change, how his ideas developed over the decades that followed the publication of The Lord of the Rings. So, of course, you know, we spent a lot of time tracing that with Galadriel uh, and Celeborn. 
We looked at that a little bit last time, thinking about Han Burihan and, and the way in which the, the, the stories of the Druidan kind of grew out from around the seeds that were sown there in The Return of the King. Um, here, again, we'll see a couple different discrete stages. And to me, the Blue Wizards represent the most dramatic um, sort of sense of the development there. Um, the trajectory of the Blue Wizards is, I think, more dramatic than, than, than any of the other wizards' trajectories in this. So I think that um, I, I think that that's, um, uh, makes them a good place to start. So let's start there. All right. So, we begin. Um, where we're beginning here is in the essay on the Astari. So the very the first text that Christopher Tolkien leads with um, is what he calls the essay on the Astari. It was written in 1954, which date you may remember as being right in the middle of the publication process of The Lord of the Rings. And the reason for this, if you recall from way back in the introduction of Unfinished Tales, Christopher Tolkien explained that the essay on the Astari was originally an index entry. It was like a glossary piece, uh, you know, uh, and it raged completely out of control. Uh, it was really just meant to be an explanation of the word Astari and became this big, long thing. Um... I just love that. That's one of you know that that uh, that that just seems to me so uh, like like Tolkien in a nutshell in some ways. But anyhow, um, in this essay, so here's what he has to say about the Blue Wizards. In this essay of the Blue, little was known in the West, and they had no names save Ithrin Luin, the Blue Wizards, for they passed into the East with Curanir, but they never returned. And whether they remained in the East, pursuing there the purposes for which they were sent, or perished or as some hold, were ensnared by Sauron and became his servants, is not now known. But none of these chances were impossible to be. For, strange indeed though this may seem, the Astari, being clad in bodies of Middle-earth, might even as men and elves fall away from their purposes, and do evil, forgetting the good in the search for power to effect it. Um... So, as far as the Blue Wizards themselves are concerned, what we learn about them here is... almost... Nothing. <laughs> that is to say, we're to, we don't know what their names are, right? You know, he's, it's the, their, their names are not known. The purposes for which they went east are unknown. And the, what happened to them out there, their destiny is unknown. Um, so as far as hard information we get about them, um, there's really two things only that we know for sure about the Blue Wizards based on... Um, Based on the the this based on the essay uh, uh, the 1954 essay on the Astari, that is that they're associated with the color blue in some way, and that they went into the east, into the far east, east of Mordor, presumably is what that means, um, and that's all we know. Now, what do we do with this? And and uh, one thing I would mention, by the way, on the side here is. Uh, I find the last sentence of particular interest. Um, none of these chances were impossible to be, he says, as if anticipating that response, right? People saying, what? The wizard's going bad? I don't know why anyone would be surprised by that, as we've certainly seen Saruman very dramatically going bad, so we should know that that's quite possible. But anyway, for strange indeed though this may seem, the Astari being clad in the bodies of Middle-earth might even as men and elves fall away from their purposes and do evil. And that also seems a little bit odd, because, you know what, um, 
based on what we see in the Silmarillion, you don't have to be clad in the bodies of Middle-earth to fall away from your purpose, right? That happened to Sauron, that happened to Morgoth in the first place, you know, to Melkor. So, um, you know, fleshly incarnation hardly seems a prerequisite for uh, for uh, losing sight of your purpose uh, and turning to your own ends. So, both halves of that sentence I find a little bit curious, uh, in a way, and one of the things that it kind of leads me to wonder, and I, and I mean that, just to wonder, I don't have any firm views on this, is how Tolkien saw this passage, that is, this what, what Christopher calls the essay on the Astari, how he saw that fitting within the frame. Presumably, since it was originally meant, that is, when he was putting pen to paper on this essay, um, we are led to understand that he thought this was going to be part of the apparatus of the Lord of the Rings. He was going to be part of the part of the uh, you know part of the indices of the Lord of the Rings. So, um, therefore, presumably, it is part of that same Hobbit composition with or without Gondorian scribal emendations that the entire Lord of the Rings is sort of, you know, is supposed to be channeled through. Um, And so I'm wondering, that that last sentence really just kind of makes me wonder what sort of framework he had in mind there. That is, from whose point of view? What audience? Because the way that sentence goes, it sounds like it's anticipating an audience reaction, right? Um, For strange indeed, though this may seem, right? I'm anticipating that you're going to find this bizarre, um, and I'm I'm, I'm anticipating from the beginning that you're going to be doubtful about what I just said, so I'm going to confirm it. There seems to be a kind of give and take between speaker and, and hearer, or writer and reader um, in that in that sentence, um, which makes me wonder exactly who is the writer in question and who are the readers in question. Um, but um, anyway, so um, so that's one just sort of side note on the cur- a curious thing that I find about that. And again, all I can do is assume the answer, which is that it's the same frame as the Lord of the Rings, but we don't really know. Um, if so, it means that the tone of this is supposed to be more speculative. Um, and I think that that's an important thing, um, as we'll see when we move forward. To say, that is to say that the things uttered in this essay can be taken, at least certainly afterwards, can be easily taken for errors, right? Because there's built into it at least the potential for error and or ignorance. Um, now, a couple of you were asking about Kuranir. Is this the first evidence that um, that Saruman was going bad? You know, that he was envying people. Is there something, uh, um, you know, Yana asks, is it, uh, am I the only one who thinks that Saruman returning on his own is very ominous? Yes, Saruman kind of coming back and being like, well, I've dealt with those two upstairs. Oh, no, they're busy. Yeah. Yeah, you'll never find the body. I mean, uh, they're, you know, occupied. We probably won't hear from them for a while. Um, uh, (laughs) You know, we don't know. It's hard not to think that. And again, one of the things to recall about all of this stuff, and again, this is the same thing that has been true of of almost everything that we've been reading, um, certainly everything we've been reading for the last couple months uh, in Unfinished Tales, um, is that it's a post Lord of the Rings thing, right? So um, we have, you know, we so we need to retain the Lord of the Rings text in our heads 
um, as we're uh, as we're uh, uh, reading this, um, because it's building on that. So again, we we have Saruman in our heads, right? We know we know what's going on there. So we, you know, uh, it's hard not to think that it sounds a little bit ominous. Um, I don't think it need be, but there is a kind of richly suggestive ambiguity about that fact. First of all, they're hanging out with him in the first place, and secondly, um, that uh, he seems to be having something to do with their being sent off like that. Um, And uh, Tim asked a good question, and Tim, I have no idea the answer, and that is about the other fact. Um, Why are they blue? Why blue? I don't know, and, you know, I've... There are a, a hundred different ways you could go with this. That is to say, if you want to start doing a symbolic analysis of the color blue um, in Tolkien, you can start drawing in... I mean, there are lots of... you know, I don't doubt that many of you could flood me with suggestions of things that the color blue is associated with over various periods and in certain contexts, and maybe Tolkien knew about that. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there are lots of possibilities like that. The color blue, you know, is significant, has been significant at various points. Um, But I'm never confident in those things. That is, uh, never confident in the absolute um, relevance of those things. So I myself think the only thing that I would really trust is a trend that's really built up in the text. I had a student once starting to work on a paper on this, um, and it, it it was too short to be able to really develop it fully, but it would be a little bit interesting um, to see a, a list of references. You know, a... to sort of... be seeing what kinds of patterns would emerge from ways in which... you know, things that these different colors are associated with in Tolkien's works themselves. Um, so... I don't know. I don't know. Um, why brown and gray? No idea. No idea. The colors of the wizards... You know, One thing that I think is pretty clear... Uh, a very understandable error, and I think it's an error, comes in when Gandalf returns and he's the white now, right? Which leads us as readers, very naturally, to assume that moving from gray to white was a promotion, right? That white is higher than gray, and so now that he's the white now and no longer the gray, he's been promoted, which, and from that, it's very difficult to, it's very difficult not to try to sort of expand out from there and see the whole initial color scheme, blue, brown, gray, white, as a, like a ranking system, like, 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 like martial arts belts in America, right? Like I, I'm going for my, for my, my, my blue robe this year. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna like, you know, uh, you know, increase, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna gain a whole bunch of levels and, uh, and I'm gonna get my, my, I mean, I don't, um, I don't think that's the case. I don't even think that that's what's directly meant by Gandalf changing from gray to white. 
um, remember what remember that when Gandalf is the white um, and this is one thing though I can certainly understand why they did this in the film um, one thing they did not represent about Gandalf's uh, um, visuals the post-resurrection Gandalf um, remember he still went covered in a tattered gray cloak um, and would sometimes throw it off and then reveal himself in his whiteness that seems to me the primary difference between Gandalf the Grey and Gandalf the White is that he turns on the high beams a whole lot more often. Um, remember in Bag End, in Chapter 1 of The Fellowship of the Ring, when Gandalf threatens that Bilbo might see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. But he doesn't fully uncloak himself. Um, that is, Gandalf the Grey seems to have gone about, from the beginning, concealing his power. He's not putting forth his power. He's not revealing himself. When he does put forth his power, one of the very few times we actually see Gandalf completely cut loose. And you can tell he completely cuts loose because he identifies himself. He starts naming names, right? And I'm thinking, of course, of the Bridge of Khazad-dûm when he's facing the Balrog. And he is naming himself. I am the servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. Um, uh, he's, he's revealing things about himself. He is identifying himself. And what happens when he you know, when he cuts loose, when he uncloaks himself fully, uh, uh, he glows with a radiant white light, right? He is like this huge sphere of white light. The white is always there, in a sense. But he was previously, in his earlier incarnation, which I think is the technically correct word, um, as Gandalf the Grey, he was like almost permanently cloaked. It almost never shone through. Now, Gandalf the White. Gandalf the White seems to have a, a different sort of set of marching orders, a different way in which he interacts with things and with people. So again, I don't think that this is like he's gained a rank, right? Or even that he's replaced Saruman. Um, you know, so when he says, you know, I indeed I am Saruman now, Saruman as he should have been, right? That's not to say like I've been promoted into Saruman's place. Um, you know, he had the top ranking. Now I have the top ranking, and I'm going to show people what Saruman should have been doing with his. T-. No, but again, he's just he is um, he is now going to fulfill a role which he seems to suggest Saruman should have been fulfilling and hasn't been fulfilling. Um, so anyway, I, I think that that's. Um, um, but again, I, I, it seems to me entirely understandable and in fact almost inescapable that people would therefore associate the colors with mere promotion and then put brown behind them and then just could sort of debate to themselves, um, you know, which is higher, blue or, blue or brown. Um, and again, I, it, it seems to me that that's really a missing of the point. Um, now, uh, I think... But again, why blue? It seems... I don't know. I don't know. I'm not even going to guess, because here I would be just absolutely... Um, I would just absolutely guessing. Um, uh, Chaz is calling me on calling him post-resurrection Gandalf. Um, yes. Uh, it, again, technically, reincarnated would be the more accurate word. I think incarnate is exactly what we're told. We'll go over that in a little bit. Is exactly what happens with the wizards. They are, they are, they are spirits. They are, they are, they are Maiar, 
who are not just embodied in a spirit that is not just manifested on you know in the physical world, um, but incarnated within a body, um, like uh, elves and men. And so when Gandalf is sent back, he is incarnated again. Reincarnated has different kind. It's more like a resurrection, I think, than a reincarnation, um, as we normal you know given the associations we normally have with those two words, um, Gandalf is more like a, re- a, a resurrection, I think, than a reincarnation, which is why I tend to use that word. Um, but, uh, yeah, Pete, he's reincarnated as himself, except not the same as himself. Exa- Again, that's why I think it's confusing uh, to use the word reincarnated, though I think it's more technically accurate. Um, but resurrected, it's quite like resur- the description of resurrection, that is in particular the Christian description of resurrection, because those who come back from the dead are still themselves, that is, their, their, their essence in a sense has not changed, as Gandalf's essence has not changed, and yet, like the new Gandalf, um, the New Testament speaks of the resurrection bodies being and operating quite differently than the old ones did. Um, so, uh, anyway, that, that's why, to me, um, the word resurrection and what is normally associated with that seems to me to match better with what we see in Gandalf than the word reincarnation and what we usually associate with that. But, but again, I, I would agree that technically... Um, Reincarnation is a more precise description. But absolutely, Sharon uh, and James both, Gandalf 2.0 is how I generally refer to him. Um, absolutely. But, um, uh, anyway. Um, uh, what else are we going to talk about? Okay, yeah, several of you are mentioning associations, and I think there are lots of associations that we can make. Again, color associations, Radagast with the Earth, um, uh, uh, Gandalf with shadows, or possibly with smoke. Um, I kind of like that, actually, right? It's, just, it's all about the pipe weed with Gandalf. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Kate, I know that's not what you meant. <laughs> um, but uh, you're thinking of his association with fire. It's certainly, absolutely. Um, but uh, I'm thinking of the, you know, the, the, bit, in, the, the bit in the hunt for the ring. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the, the, the blue wizards with the sea, all very possible all, all, all you know certainly certainly could be the case so um i would uh but but I, to me it quickly becomes it, it begins to feel to me very quickly like an exercise in free association which therefore i kind of question the the usefulness of or or um the sort of accuracy of but i don't know um Anyway, let's uh, let's uh, one more thing here about the Blue Wizards 1.0 before we see them change. Um, Jerry asks, uh, aren't, "Aren't the Blue Wizards mentioned elsewhere in 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 Tolkien's letters?" Yes. Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, of course, in Unfinished Tales, one of his letters is mentioned, and this is clearly from that same period. This is 1958, so it's four years after the essay of the Astari was written. But you can see the concept of the Blue Wizard seems to be very similar to the one that he just outlined. In a letter written in 1958, my father said he knew nothing clearly about the other two, since they were not concerned in the history of the northwest of Middle-earth. I think, he wrote, they went as emissaries to distant regions, east and south, far out of Numenorean range, missionaries to enemy-occupied lands, as it were. What success they had I do not know, but I fear that they failed. 
as Saruman did, though doubtless in different ways, and I suspect they were founders or beginners of secret cults and magic traditions that outlasted the fall of Sauron. Okay, um, and we see a similar thing here. Again, no names, right? Um, so we got the the, 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 though notice we actually don't even have them being associated with the color blue here, but again, we, we, can, we can sort of, I think, assume that that's stable. Um, but anyway, so even one of the two facts we got before, we don't get anymore. Now we just have the fact that they're going out east, um, and the possibility, at least, of their failure. Now, one difference here is that four years later, he is now at least acknowledging the possibility that they didn't fail, right? That that it wasn't didn't even really seem to be on the table, even though you know the potential of it seemed to be recognized, and that their failure was not called certain. But he does he does at least mention, um, you know, what success they had. I do not know, but I fear they failed, right? Um, you know that like that uh, that's a slightly different note in his description of their failure. Um, uh, but anyway, um, still, we're still sort of expressing the same general idea about the blue wizards, um, and suggesting most likely that they, uh, they did fail. Um, let's see. Um, Arthur is uh, asking, you know, is Tolkien therefore linking these failed wizards to Eastern pagan religions? Um, yes, yes, he is. Um, secret cults and magic traditions that outlasted the fall of Sauron. Absolutely, yes. Um, did he have specific ones in mind? I, I don't know. Kay's asking a similar question. You know, did Tolkien associate the Eastern and Southern lands with Africa and Asia? Um, uh, you know, and there, you know, can we follow that lead in 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 linking the blue wizards to other religions? R- sort of vaguely, I mean, uh, you know, he. This is something that kind of, to some extent, lost steam over time. I give a much longer answer to this question. And I'll try to restrain myself, um, as as is pretty well known. When Tolkien set out to write his stuff, and I'm talking way at the beginning in the Book of Lost Tales uh, years, he talked he talked later on in retrospect about having wanted to establish a mythology for England, um, and what that meant um, back in those days was a much more literal um, a, a an indigenous a fictitious indigenous mythology for not just Britain generally understood, because there's already plenty of Celtic stuff, but England in particular. And the initial stories are very much involved with the kind of mythological explanation of things. Um, And a lot of Tolkien readers don't know this. Tal Erisea, Elvenholm, was England. And there was even an explanation, it even involved an explanation of how Ireland got separated from the rest of Britain when the island was moved. Um, The whole structure was different. It's not exactly like um, the later Silmarillion story. You may remember the moving island, right, the floating island that gets pushed around by which, um, you know, the elves get shipped over to Valinor. It's not that same story, uh, exactly, if that's what you're thinking when I was mentioning that. And we don't have time to go into all the details. Again, there's there's, this, it is... We'd have to talk. We'd, somebody would have to elect the Book of Lost Tales in order for us to do that. But, um, uh, but, uh, but, but anyway, d- the the point is, 
at the beginning of his conception, the stories of his mythology were very explicitly tied to the soil of England, such that not only land masses, but particular cities and locations within the mythology were identified with modern English cities. Um, so um, that is the, the earliest conception. As time went on, that kind of got lesser and lesser and vaguer and vaguer. He does still say um, that, you know, hobbits still linger in places where they used to be, which is, you know, in the north and west of the old world, that is to say, northwestern Europe, um, which does lead it, I mean, you know, we know that the, you know, and there's there's a lot of discussion in this chapter, actually, thinking about the um, Tolkien's long commentaries on, the, you know, Faramir's uh, dictum about Gandalf and his list of names, right? Olor and I was in the West, Inconus in the South, remember all that stuff? Um, so that question of what counts as the North and what is the South and all those things, we can see him sort of thinking through the geography. Um, and there are, so there are certainly um, correlations between the geography of Middle-earth in this way and the geography of um, the later world and the idea that Middle-earth is just our world at a previous, you know, at a, at a prehistoric stage, um, is never completely abandoned. But it gets much, much less precise. I mean, I think that attempting to identify, um, really identify, like historically and geographically identify any of the, of the races in Middle-earth with particular race. I mean, again, we've talked about, you know, I've mentioned several times the whole, uh, you know, Rohirrim and the Anglo-Saxons thing, and Tolkien's famous disclaimer in, uh, in, in Appendix F of the Return of the King, that, uh, you know, of course the, uh, the Rohirrim are not really the Anglo-Saxons. The, you know, there's, the, there's no real similarity there. And of course there's lots of similarity there. Um, but again, does that mean that he's suggesting that the Rohirrim are the ancestors of the Angles and the Saxons in particular? No, I don't think that we see that at all. Rather, what we see is the history of peoples and tongues in Middle-earth as it's represented in its story, in, in, in the story that we're given, in the translated story that we're given, um, modeling or paralleling the development. So, so yeah, so we see the, the, the people of the Eothead and the, pe- and the people of Northern Rovanian who have all of those Gothic names, um, uh, like Radagast is said to be a Gothic name, uh, and well, no, it does not. It doesn't say that. He says it's you know uh, it, from the Upper Anduin, which means Gothic, uh, based upon you know like like Vidugavia and all of those names, um, and then you know the the descendants of those are the Rohirrim, whose language is like Anglo-Saxon, a reflection and a parallel of um, of Tolkien's scholarly belief that the that Anglo-Saxon derived from Gothic. But, um... Anyway, again, the point is, can we then take that and sort of map this out in some way upon, you know, modern countries and modern geography and modern culture, or even historical cultures of those regions? Ah you know, that, that we're supposed to, that Tolkien is sort of prompting us or inviting us to draw some kind of, of, uh, of equivalency, um, you know, or sort of ancestral descent from, you know, the Rohirrim directly through, you know, uh, the, the, 
you know the 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 Germanic peoples of no I, I, I really don't think that that works um, I see very little insistence on that kind of thing I see very little justification for that within the text itself I really don't um, uh, the cultural differences that he describes like in his descriptions of the Haradrim for instance seem to be based mostly on geography and climate. Um, the sun is very hot there, Gollum tells us. Um, you know, so he describes people who are dressed, um, who appear and are dressed as more, uh, more arid desert cultures might be expected to look and dress, um, because they're from the south, uh, the far south, from, from far Harad. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've never found that really a very tenable argument to maintain. Um, it just doesn't really seem to me to hold at all. Um, but, um, but again, it, the, the, the links between Middle-earth geography and real-world geography do have deep roots in, uh, uh, in, in Tolkien's thinking. Uh, about his mythology. So it's also not something that can be just kind of flippantly dismissed either. So it's a complicated kind of thing. Um, okay. Uh, sorry, there's a bunch of other questions here. Um, uh, okay. Um, uh, Chaz, you were referring ahead to their other names. You're jumping ahead. What I'm trying to do here... Um, and a couple of you are also trying to trying to lure me into talking about their Valinorian names and stuff. One of the, I'm, just as I was with Galadriel and Celeborn, I am again here. Don't just mash all those things together, okay? Because they're not all mashed together. Um, it's not enough to, to take everything that we know about the blue, everything he said about the blue wizards, put it into one pot, and imagine it is like one continuous story of the blue wizards. That's not what it is. That's not what happens. Um, they do get names. They'll get two different sets of names, and those two different sets of names suggest very different things about them. Um, but those are later versions of the story. Um, those are not the same as these blue wizards. In fact, their very names suggest that their entire history and story is quite different from this story that we get. So what we have there is not more added detail that we can combine with this, but rather a complete revision, and in the case of the Blue Wizards, I believe, a total chucking of the old story. So this is why I'm trying to be careful um, in, in untangling these things, uh, because this is to me one of the things that is most interesting and most profitable when we're reading through chapters like this in Unfinished Tales, that is not the ones which just sort of contain stories which aren't done, um, but rather which sort of show the development of Tolkien's thought uh, in these ways. And not to mention the fact, if we are ever to go on and do some of the history of Middle-earth together, which a couple of you have suggested that it might be fun to do... Um, I uh, I would suggest that we practice this because we're going to need to get pretty good at that uh, as we uh, as we go along. Um, okay, so this is Blue Wizard 1.0. This is the uh, what we see in the 50s. His thoughts about the Blue Wizards. Now, now we get into what I. Uh, am calling uh, in tonight's class the Valinorian note. Um, that sort of scrap that 
uh, Christopher Tolkien talks about, um, where he talks about the, the sort of the Valinorian background, um, what I think is really the most fascinating and tantalizing um, bit about the wizards that we get. Um, even more fascinating, I think, than the essay on the Astari that he leads with. The note ends with the statement that Kurumo, Saruman, took Iwendil, Radagast, because Yovana begged him, and that Alatar took Palando as a friend. On another page of jottings, clearly belonging to the same period, it is said that Kurumo was obliged to take Iwendil to please Yovana, wife of Aule. There are here also some rough tables relating the names of the Astari to the names of the Valar, Oloran to Manwe and Varda, Kurumo to Aule, Iwendil to Yovana, Alatar to Arome, and Palando also to Arome, but this replaces Palando to Mandos and Niena. Uh, and then commentary on this. This is Christopher's commentary on this passage. Whereas in the essay on the Astari it is said that the two who passed into the east have no names, save Ithrin Luin, the blue wizards, meaning of course that they had no names in the west of Middle-earth, here they are named as Alatar and Palando, and are associated with Orome, though no hint is given of the reason for this relationship. It might be, though this is the merest guess, that Arome of all the Valar had the greatest knowledge of the further parts of Middle-earth, and that the blue wizards were destined to journey in those regions and to remain there. All right. Now, notice, compare and contrast Blue Wizards 1.0 with Blue Wizards 2.0. What do we get? Well, we get um, more facts. We have names, most importantly. This is Tolkien, after all. Names are important, right? So we have names now. We didn't have names before. Before, it was like, I don't know what their names are. Um, you know, they basically didn't have any names. Well, no. Now we get their names. We know what they are called in Valinor. What are, we you know, could say, the original names uh, of the Blue Wizards. Presumably not the names that they are, you know, that they go by. Again, if Gandalf and Saruman are any indication... Um, they'll get lots of names uh, at various points to various people and, at, and in various places, but um, uh, but we at least they now have some names to speak of, and that's kind of interesting. Um, we get Paul. Uh, you are right to point out we can infer the mission from the associated Valar. Um, Christopher Tolkien's speculation here seems to be, uh, you know, he says it's the merest guess, but it seems to me a very good one. Um, it seems uh, not coincidental that. The one thing that we always knew about them, you know, that we that had been stated about them before, was that they traveled further. They ranged further away than the other three wizards did. So um, the association, and so the fa- when we combine combine that with the fact that they're associated with the Valar, who uh, with the Vala, sorry, uh, who does uh, you know himself travel most around Middle Earth, as you know we learn about Orome and the, and the Silmarillion, that seems uncoincidental. So this seems a good guess on on. Christopher's part, and that's kind of interesting. How does this help us to fully understand their mission? Uh, well, it's hard to say. I mean, again, we can guess, sort of, based on what we see of Orome, and and uh, you know, you know, try to sort of speculate. What are they hunters? I don't know. Um, but um, you know, we don't want to we don't want to take that further than we necessarily can. Um, uh, you know, any more than the text of which there is quite little, uh, will really give us warrant for. Um, but, um, 
Um, but okay, so we have good, Sarah, excellent point. Blue Wizards 2.0 don't seem to be influenced by Saruman. This is uh, Sarah Lagarde, I should, I should say. There are a bunch of Sarahs here tonight. Um, they don't seem to be as influenced by Saruman, but, but have a destiny to journey. Yes, it's not just that they're led astray. Whatever, you know, whatever, uh, 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 you know, uh, potential skullduggery Saruman might have been, by implication, uh, associated with uh, in that first depiction, um, seems not to be the case here. They are quite independent. In fact, Alatar is described not as subordinate. He is one of the original three. So of the five wizards, there are three that are pr- that primarily are assigned on this journey, and that's Gandalf and Saruman and Alatar, and then Palando goes along with Alatar, and Iwendil, that is to say Radagast, goes along with Saruman. Um, so this puts Alatar, it seems to put Alatar up on, you know, about the same level. Again, um, indicating that the whole idea of color as rank among the wizards is almost certainly not true. Um, so anyway, okay, it's still not all that much, but it's a great deal more. Um, um, yeah, Roy, actually, you're thinking of the wrong names there. Uh, we'll come back to those in a second. Um, yeah, yeah, good. John, exactly. John uh, John Kingdon says... Orome is the Vala who strikes into enemy territory alone. Yes, remember how uh, he used to make Melkor nervous back in the early days and how he tried to instill, he, Melkor, tried to instill fear of the elves into, you know, uh, for a solitary rider. Um, uh, John says that seems to be the mission of the Blue Wizards. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, um, so, you'll notice, of course, the other enormously... Um, the other enormously uh, so obvious that nobody's even mentioning it difference is that there is no indication here of their failure. Now, it's still not ruled out. We don't know for certain that they didn't fail, right? There's no positive statement um, on which we can really build that. But um, there's no there's no indication, there's no implication that they actually failed. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, 3.0. This comes from his late writing. So, okay, so we had... Uh, uh, Christopher Tolkien doesn't give us a date, unless I missed it. He doesn't give us a date uh, for the, this Valinorian note. He places it somewhere in the middle there. Um, so, uh, just based on how he placed it, um, he, he's doing them roughly in chronological order, from the 54 essay, the, the 1958 letter, and then the f- later notes, which are in 1972. So, I, I, somewhere in the 60s, I'm guessing vaguely from the way in which t- uh, Christopher structured it, but I, I don't recall that he says directly. Um, uh, but, I uh, saw so, a couple other comments here. Um, Arthur points out that Orome wasn't just the traveler; uh, he was he was the warrior. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, he certain he certainly was. I mean, Orome and Tolkas are two of the two of the the ones of the Valar who are most fearsome in battle. So yeah, uh, you'd think that um, the servants of Orome venturing out uh, into the frontiers sounds like a plan, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur points out the role of wizards, at least in the West, was not military, but more inspirational. 
Yeah, yeah, um, and and may well have been also over there. But but again, you know, we can't assume that it's the same everywhere, especially since since by definition, what they were doing was to use the phrase used earlier, going out of Numenorean range. They're dealing with a completely different situation, right? Here we have the remnants of the Dunedain. We have the remnants of the Eldar. We even have some of the some of the Noldor. There's still Calaquendi going around here in the north and west of Middle Earth, where Gandalf and Saruman and Radagast are. Um, that is presumably not the case out in the far east and the far south, where the two blue wizards are going. And so, you know, are they going to, you know? The job of Gandalf might be to go around and stir people to memory, right? To reawaken in them the fire. Um, uh, uh, Alatar and Palando aren't rewaking the fire. They're not rekindling anything. They got a kindle from scratch, right? Um, so, you know, I don't think we should assume that they necessarily carry on the same way that the uh, the the Western wizards do. Um, but um, but yeah, Jerry asks, why do these wizards go east? But you know, Gandalf says, to the east I go not. We don't know. We don't. Know. Is this, was it just their inclination? Was it in their job description? Don't know. We don't know. Um, uh, this passage. Um, that is to say, the the Valinorian fragment here. Um, the reason that I find it so intriguing, um, of the of the bits about the wizards that we are given here by Christopher Tolkien in this chapter, the Valinorian bit is my favorite one because it is to me the most richly suggestive. Um, and uh, and Jerry, it's 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 most richly suggestive in exactly that way by associating. Um, these different spirits with these particular Valar, it leads me to speculate about what kind of character they have, what kind of missions they might go on. Again, as, as, just as, as we've been doing, given only that one fact, that both of them are associated with Orome and that they are sent off into the Far East discuss amongst yourselves, right? That's a ritually suggestive fact. What he was giving us before were mostly negative facts, other than the speculation that they probably failed. Um, that is to say, we don't know their names, and we don't know where they went, and we never heard from them again. Um, oh, and by the way, they were colored blue, and they went out into the West. Um, but now, you know, we're, we're getting more information to work with, and it's it's fascinating, I think, to, uh, to, to speculate about. Um... Uh, Nancy, good question, Nancy. Nancy Fosberg says, the early part of this chapter suggests that there are potentially lots of Astari. The number is unknown, but the chiefs were five. Is there anything else about the minor wizards? Is it also true later? No idea. Um, it is, it sounds, from the Valinorian fragment, um, it sounds like Tolkien has abandoned that idea. That it doesn't explicitly say. Um, but it does sound like there are five and only five. Not five chief ones and a bunch of other minor ones, um, but really only five that go to Middle-earth. Um, so that seems to be kind of a refinement um, of the idea. That's Anyway, that's, Nancy, that's how I read it. That's how, that, that, that's how I see it, and it may be wrong. Um, but, um, yeah, oh, and Chaz, you're absolutely right. Um, the note about uh, how Tolkien had originally written Palando to Mendoza and Niena... 
Um, that's even better. I mean, man, you could write you could write a whole essay. Certainly you could write a really interesting short story based on the sole premise one of the spirits of Orame and one of the spirits of Mandos and Niena team up and go out into the east among the servants of Sauron to do good for the Valar and the preservation of the children of Iluvatar. What would that look like? What does that mean? Discuss. I mean, that's so fascinating. Um, it's kind of neater to make them, it's more tidy to make them both uh, 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 followers of Orame. But, uh, but, but, yeah, I love that idea, Chaz. I think that's, uh, um, that's, that, that's, that's really fascinating. So there could be, you know, there could be lots of things. Um, okay. Um, finally, as I was saying, Wizards 3.0. This is the late stuff now. 1972, um, this is dated by Christopher Tolkien, so we're talking about the year before Tolkien's death, some of his very, very late writings, just like the very last things. Remember the Galadriel 4.0 story, you know, the story of her sa- her and Celeborn, when Celeborn is now a, is now a Teleri of, uh, uh, um, of Alqualonde, and the two of them are sailing independently and have nothing to do with Feanor at all? That sort of stage, in that same time, uh, he's writing this later stuff. Um, and by the way, this is, you'll notice, this is passage is from Peoples of Middle-earth, which might seem like I'm cheating, but I'm not. Um, he mentions, he, Christopher, mentions in the, pref- in the, you know, in the lead-in to this passage, that in Unfinished Tales, he alluded to the fact that there were some other notes which were impossible to decipher. And then he comes back in volume 12 of the History of Middle-earth and says, well, I've been trying for a long time now, and I think I can make out more of that passage that I, uh, that I said, you know, 15 years ago was indecipherable, and this is it. So this is a bit that he would have put in. This is the passage he was talking about in Unfinished Tales, and would have put it in fun, in, in Unfinished Tales, but he wasn't confident about uh, his reading of it. Uh, but so he puts it in later. So you know. So we're going to talk about it here anyway. The other two came much earlier, at the same time probably as Glorfindel, when matters became very dangerous in the Second Age. Glorfindel was sent to Elrond and was, though not yet said, preeminent in the war in Eriador. Now go ahead and, while I'm reading, type the stuff, that, the new facts that we're getting. Because, uh, again, I want to talk about how are the Blue Wizards 3.0 different? How is their story developed? But the other two Astari were sent for a different purpose. Morinetar and Romastamo, Darkness Slayer and East Helper. Their task was to circumvent Sauron, to bring help to the few tribes of men that had rebelled from Melkor worship, to stir up rebellion and after his first fall, to search out his hiding, in which they failed, and to cause dissension and disarray. That, that, that reflects Christopher being less confident about that he's reading those words properly. And by the way, if you've ever seen Tolkien's handwriting, or you know, a, a copy of Tolkien's handwriting, when he's writing notes fast, it is almost indecipherable. I mean, it barely looks like more than a little wavy line. Um, uh, the difference in Tolkien's handwriting when he's writing his own private notes quickly, and when he's writing, um, you know, fancy writing, he could do gorgeous calligraphy. Um, but, boy, his scratchings, when he is just making jottings to himself, um, are maddening to try to deal with. Anyway, uh, to cause dissension and disarray among the Dark East. 
They must have had very great influence on the history of the Second Age and Third Age in weakening and disarraying the forces of East, who would both in the Second and Third Age otherwise have outnumbered the West. Okay. Um, what do we get? Yes, Arthur. An easy one to overlook, actually, but I think the biggest change of all, um, the biggest, most profound way in which the story of the wizards has changed here in this later section, all of a sudden the wizards are second age. Absolutely. The other two came much earlier, when matters became very dangerous in the second age. So now, the blue wizards are the first ones over. Right? It's, you know, they're not, they're not minor, no, they're the first wave of the wizards. They're the advanced team. And they come over in the Second Age. The year, around the year 1000 of the Third Age is the date agreed upon uh, for the coming of the wizard, you know, basically agreed upon in almost all the earlier texts in the Appendices of the Lord of the Rings and the, and the, and the essay on the Astari, all that stuff says. About 1000 into the, into the Third Age. Now they're Second Age. Um, what does that mean? What does that show? What does it suggest? What do we see there? It's interesting to hear your thoughts about this. Um, think about the context now, the historical context of this moment. Remember, the, the war in Eriador that we're talking about is Sauron's war, the war of the Rings of Power, when Sauron was working with Celebrimbor, and then they had their little falling out, you know, one ring to rule them all, etc., etc., and, you know, Celebrimbor flew off the handle, and Sauron got mad, and, you know, here we go, right? You, of course, you recall this, right? So we're talking about Sauron's invasion of Eriador um, when he sacked... Um, he sacked uh, uh, Regian, he sacked Holland, um, killed Celebrimbor, seized all of the rings of power that he could, but could not find the three, got really mad, besieged Rivendell, was moving out and, and, and besieging Linden um, out by the coast when the Numenorians appeared uh, and, uh, and just absolutely obliterated Sauron's army from there. That is the historical context that we're given for now the Blue Wizards back in the Second Age. At that tense moment, which, so, you know, it's that's really the first War of the Ring, right? Um, which predates both the Battle of the Last Alliance and, of course, the War of the Ring told in the Lord of the Rings. Um, the first War of the Rings um, was a pretty tense time uh, and pretty near to disaster um, for, you know, the free peoples of Middle-earth. Um, in that time and at that and in that moment, the blue wizards are sent and they're sent out into the east. Um, this is where several of you have been wanting to talk about the meanings of their names. This is where, in 1972, is where we get the meanings of their names: Mora Natar and Romastamo, Darkness Slayer and East Helper. This is a dramatic difference. Not only do they have names, they have names which show us their activities. And again, thinking back to our previous conversation about the implications of them being followers of Arome and what does this mean about how they might possibly have operated or been supposed to be operating out in the East, this is much more explicit. Darkness Slayer? That's pretty... Um, uh, that's pretty... aggressive 
right? Um, very different. Again, several of you were sort of saying, "Hey, you know, the wizards in the in the in the in the West are not, uh, you know, they're, they're not taking military action." No, but uh, kind of sounds like the blue wizards might have been um, darkness slayer, and you know, it could be figurative, right? Doesn't mean that that they're generals, right, or they're warriors or anything like that necessarily. Um, you can slay darkness uh, without fighting. Um, you, you know, you could call Gandalf darkness slayer in his healing of Theoden, perhaps. But um, so you know, there are different ways that you can take that. But still, it's very active, um, and they have um, they have as uh, who was it that was saying this? Um, Carolyn, as Carolyn was saying, they have a specific brief instead of just heading out east. Yeah, we're told why they were they were headed out east, and not only does it not say that they failed, as it did the first time, um, not only does it leave open the possibility of their success, as the second one does, it explicitly says that they did succeed. Um, Not completely, right? One of their jobs was to seek out Sauron in his hiding. That is, when Sauron is uh, almost destroyed... um, you know, in the battle of the, in the War of the Last Alliance, when Isildur cuts the ring from his hand and his spirit flees, um, apparently it was the Blue Wizard's job to try to find where the uh, you know the the greatly reduced spirit of Sauron was hiding, and they didn't find him; they missed him. So in that, so their success was not perfect, but but boy, the War of the Ring would have gone differently if. Uh, um, if they had, uh, if they had not been there, right? Um, so in fact, the note that gets struck here, um, though again, it's so much less full, he's not even using complete sentences here. These are just notes which Christopher Tolkien, you know, in, in, in the early 80s couldn't even understand, right? Uh, um, that is, he couldn't even read it. Um, but nevertheless, the, the kind of story that we get here, it strikes a note which sounds to me very similar to the note that we get at the end of Appendix A. That is, the passage in Appendix A, which is all that is left of what was originally the Quest of Erebor, right? The, the discussion between Gandalf and Frodo and Gimli uh, in Minas Tirith. Um, the bit that's left in the appendix, remember, where Gandalf says, you know, as we celebrate the victory here, let us not forget the contributions made by other people. Let us not forget, um, you know, Dan and King Bran fighting in Dale. Let us not forget um, the Battle of the Woods, right, where Celeborn did something and Thranduil. Um, Let's not forget that, right? Um, And now, retroactively, in 1972, we seem to have, and also you know, give it up for the blue wizards out in the east, right? Let us not forget that had it not been for those two blue wizards out there, we wouldn't have stood a chance in the War of the Ring. Boy, they would have had, they would have been drawing on the military might of an entire continent, probably several times larger than the entire west of Middle-earth, had they not been thwarted by those blue wizards out there. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that is an enormous change. As I said, the story of the Blue Wizards, though very short, is a very dramatic one in how it's changing. Um, and, uh, uh, um, yeah, yeah, and, and they're, they're, so, uh, yeah, Chad, they're combating the, the, um, reappearance of Sauron after his destruction, um, when he loses the ring. Um, 
That's that, that's my understanding of that. That is, you know, it starts off in that period of the war in Eriador, but they're there throughout, right? So that one of the things that they're doing is when Sauron flees, they're trying to uh, they're trying to find him and they're trying to combat his gaining of power again. Remember all those references in the Lord of the Rings to how the East is moving, right? The East is all mobilized when Sauron returns. Well, yeah, but that's only a fraction of what he would have been able to do. Um, but uh. Yeah, yeah. Um, it also suggests, of course, the, and again, going Arthur, getting back to the first observation that you made, the arrival of the Blue Wizards in the Second Age is fascinating because it alters the concept, significantly alters the concept of what the Wizards were up to, or rather what the Valar were up to in sending the Wizards in the first place. Um, and it's, to me, a very interesting change. Um, we get... You think about... Sort of step back, and you think about the history of the relationship between the Valar and Middle-earth, right? You get lots of stuff in the First Age, but um, but in particular, we get that sort of standoff, almost. You know, the, how the Valar have separated themselves, and when the Noldor go back, they don't, you know... It takes Arendel returning to get them to intercede, to, to, to intervene again at the end of the first age. Before that, they're not, except for Olmo, who, as he explained in chapter one of Unfinished Tales, can't be bothered. You know, he's uh, he's the fly in the ointment <laughs> for for the Valar, and by golly, he's going to keep interfering in Middle Earth, and nobody can tell him he can't. Um, but uh, but most of the Valar aren't doing that directly anymore until the end comes and the moment comes when they intervene dramatically at the end of the first age. Uh, in the third age, we get the Astari, but the second age was primarily the age of Numenor. That is, th- the interactions that we get from the Valar there was no indication of a clear direct intervention to Middle-earth itself by the Valar. We see the Numenorians um, engaging with them in various ways, right? First, the, uh, the, 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 the dramatic intervention by the Valar in the, um, in the aftermath of the War of Wrath, in the establishment of Numenor, and the bringing of the Edain uh, to the Island of Gift, um, and then you've got the whole ban of the Valar, and ultimately the attack on the Valar and the destruction of them. So you've got this sort of Numenor focus um, on the Valar. Are the Valar even paying attention to Middle-earth? Um, you know, none of those stories suggested. Well, here in 1972, Tolkien is suggesting it, uh, and he's projecting it, he's projecting it um, back then. Um, and Chasno, I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to understand that when they were sent in the Second Age... You know, they had a to-do list, which included, like, when a couple thousand years from now, Sauron is nearly destroyed, track him down and try to prevent him from reestablishing power. But rather that these are the things that they, that they, that they do, the, the jobs that they get over the course of the time, that having projected their arrival, having moved their, back, their arrival backwards, back into the middle of the Second Age, rather than into the middle of the Third Age, he then goes on to say... Being in Middle Earth during that time, what would they do? Well, of course, had there been, a, had Gandalf been around, um, not only, uh, I mean, it's it's sort of an interesting question, right? Had Gandalf been there at the War of the Last Alliance, what would have happened? Well, 
he probably would have spoken more abusively to his Sildur on Mount Doom, right? Uh, Throw it in, you fool! Uh, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, it, besides that, um, we certainly, it's, I mean, given Gandalf's actions in the latter half of the Third Age, um, one would imagine that the first thing on the mind of somebody like Gandalf would have been, let's tra- Sauron isn't destroyed, he's not dead, so let's track him down and find him and see if we can prevent him from regaining shape. Again, based on what Gandalf actually does do in the second half of the Third Age, that would seem, in fact, the quite logical thing for a second to early Third Age wizard to do. So, he says, that's what the blue wizards do, in fact. Um, they didn't totally succeed at that. But hey, you know, they tried. Um, uh, yeah, Kevin asks, couldn't the lack of intervention by the Valar in the Second Age simply be our ignorance of it because of how the focus of most writings in the Second Age are from a Numenorean perspective? Kevin, yes, I think so. Um, and what's more, I think that categorically, the understanding or the belief of people in Middle-earth that the Valar are uninterested in Middle-earth or don't pay attention to it or don't intervene in it at all, um, I think says more about the ignorance of the people of Middle-earth about the Valar than it does than it says about the ambivalence of the Valar towards Middle-earth. Um, so, Kevin, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, okay. Um, so that's the Blue Wizards. As I said, I'm just going to say a couple things about the Blue Wizards at the beginning of class, and then we're going to really get on to what I mostly want to talk about today, uh, since, you know, class is almost over. But um, let's go back and review some of the stuff we've already talked about and some of these things we can get through relatively quickly. Um, and again, the reason I wanted to start with the Blue Wizards is I think it establishes the pattern really interestingly and most dramatically. Um, Let's look at the description. This is now back in the 1954 essay um, to the description of the nature of the Astari. Emissaries they were from the Lords of the West, the Valar, who still took counsel for the governance of Middle-earth. And when the shadow of Sauron began first to stir again, took this means of resisting him. For with the consent of Eru, they sent members of their own high order, but clad in bodies as of men, real and not feigned, but subject to the fears excuse me, and pains and weariness of earth, able to hunger and thirst and be slain, though because of their noble spirits they did not die, and aged only by the cares and labors of many long years. Um, obviously, it's, you know, that, that's he's not contradicting himself there. When he says they did not die, he means they did not die of old age, but they can, of course, be slain. Um, you know, if you stick a sword through Gandalf's head, he will die. Um, or if, you know, you'd like throw him into a chasm and then make him climb up a whole lot of stairs and then beat him down with a with a you know a whip and whatever else the conflict between him and the balrog consisted of up on top of the mountain anyway he could die if that happens um um or if he's dropped from the claws of an eagle right do not let me fall says gandalf anyway he can be slain but he doesn't die of old age and aged only by the cares and labors of many long years Note here, Tolkien making a reference back to a... Remember, you know, I've said several times how Tolkien is a very careful reader of his own writing, right? And you can often hear um, places where he is kind of pointing back to allusions that have been made uh, during the course of the Lord of the Rings text. One of the things here that we get is we see, you know, at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, 
Frodo perceives that Gandalf has aged. When there's nine years between the times that he sees Gandalf, he sees Gandalf for the first time in nine years, he thinks he looks older, more care, more careworn, right? Not dramatically older. He's not aging before his eyes, but he does alter. He's not. He does not have an ageless, immortal um, uh, 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 appearance. So, Tolkien is telling us that that's generally true of the Astari. And this the Valar did, desiring to amend the errors of old, especially that they had attempted to guard and seclude the Eldar by their own might and glory fully revealed, whereas now their emissaries were forbidden to reveal themselves in forms of majesty, or to seek to rule the wills of men or elves by open display of power, but coming in shapes weak and humble, were bidden to advise and persuade men and elves to good, and to seek to unite in love and understanding all those whom Sauron, should he come again, would endeavor to dominate and corrupt. Okay. Here's where we get things that we mentioned before, that is, the fact that um, the fact that the wizards do not just have a feigned body, to use the word, that it's not just a fake body. Um, we know that the Valar, we're told in the Valaquenta, that the Valar can manifest themselves in physical form. They can choose to appear to the children of Iluvatar in physical forms, but that's not their real selves. That's an appearance that they put on themselves in order to make it easier for them to interact with the people of Middle-earth. Um, uh, so it's, it is in that sense a feigned appearance on their part. The Astari are given real, not feigned bodies. They are actually incarnated in flesh. Not only are they subject to the fears and pains and weariness of Earth, but Christopher Tolkien suggests uh, in his commentary soon after this that they are, rest- they are limited by the brains and the experience that they have. That is, they don't automatically know and remember all of the things that they knew from Valinor. They are not just the immortal spirits operating, but now operating in a new body. They seem to be limited by their body. Their knowledge seems to be limited to their new body. This is something that I think that we can see um, as a... So again, I think there are some passages of the Lord of the Rings that we can hear behind that idea. In particular, the times when Gandalf speaks as if he's had to learn all these things. One of the moments that jumps out at me as an illustration is when he's riding with Pippin on Shadowfax, uh, galloping towards Minas Tirith after Pippin has looked in the Palantir. And he, Gandalf, is reciting rhymes of lore, right? As if he has to... He has to use these mnemonic devices made by human scholars, right, in the Third Age to help them remember things which otherwise are obscure and might be lost. And it's like, Gandalf, you know, um, and remember Gandalf's comment about the Palantir. He's like, you know, maybe you could see the unimaginable hand and mind of Feanor at work. And if you, it's easy to say if you think about it and be like, what do you mean, the unimaginable hand and mind of Feanor? Can't you imagine it again? Didn't you know Feanor? Um, I mean, didn't you used to pass Feanor on the street in Valinor at some point? I mean, seriously. Um, in what way is it, um, is it, is it, um, uh, is, is it unimaginable to you? Well, he, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't know. He doesn't remember that. Um, so anyway, I, I think that that's um, that's one of the things that we are um, 
that we're that we're reminded of about them that their incarnation is real the limitation of their power when they go to middle earth what they are volunteering for the limitation that they volunteer for is much more profound than you know say Aonway when he's leading the armies uh, of the Valar in the War of Wrath um, he does not seem to be operating under the same kinds of limitations um, but uh, anyway um, okay the other thing what was the other thing oh yeah the business about open displays of power if they can't do this. Um, one general trend that I would point to. Remember the context of this. 1954. This was designed to be part of the apparatus of the Lord of the Rings. It is, therefore, inescapably, far more Lord of the Rings-centric than the later his later writings of it. Of course, when he's writing in 1972 and he's jotting down notes in 1972 about the about the career of the Blue Wizards, he's making stuff up that he didn't he wasn't didn't feel free to make up in the 1950s. Um, you know that he or always wasn't comfortable doing. Um, you'll notice the emphasis here seems to be like the stuff about the Druidon that we were talking about. Um, you know the example I was using last time about how. We see all these things about Han Burihan, we get all these references to the Pukulman and the Path of the Dead and all these other these other ancient things, and Tolkien is taking those things and kind of fitting them together, moving them forward a little bit, developing them um, in some different ways, incorporating in some ways kind of synthesizing elements. We talked about the tall guy, um, you know, the tall king by the but you know, the uh, my my uh, my gateway droog from last time, right? Um, who has Almost every characteristic of a droog, as described in the uh, in 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 that chapter, except that he's described as tall in the Lord of the Rings, right? So, and again, there I think we can see Tolkien assimilating these things and putting them together. Um, here in this essay, 1954, um, the description of the wizards sounds primarily like a setup for Gandalf and Saruman. That it's primarily talking about Gandalf and Saruman, open display of power. Um, uh, to rule the will, yeah, they, they, they're not allowed to um, seek to rule the wills of men or elves by open display of power. Not that we're thinking of anybody in particular when we say that. Um, but instead, they should be coming. They're coming in shakes weak and humble, and are bidden to advise and persuade men and elves to good. Not that we're thinking of anybody in particular. I mean, just like that passage is transparently talking about Saruman and Gandalf. Right, um, these this is in a sense merely generalizations that are being made from the careers of those two things. Again, this is more of a kind of a marginal commentary on um, uh, on the Lord of the Rings stuff than it is um, him telling us what really lay behind that. Right, it's it's him kind of p- connecting things together a little bit later on he is going to choose to take their stories in different ways. But here we see him wanting to explain, you know, to sort of fit together and make uh, make into a, you know, a clear and coherent package what we see about Wizards in the Lord of the Rings and to emphasize the things that that get emphasized in the Lord of the Rings, and in particular the great role that Gandalf plays. Um, and that's what a lot of the essay focuses on. Kierden's greatest act is his discernment 
of Gandalf, right? For, said he, great labors and perils lie before you, and lest your task prove too great and wearisome, take this ring for your aid and comfort. It was entrusted to me only to keep secret, and here upon the west shores it is idle. But I deem that in days ere long to come it should be in nobler hands than mine, that may wield it for the kindling of all hearts to courage. And the grey messenger took the ring, and kept it ever secret. Yet the white messenger, who was skilled to uncover all secrets, after a time became aware of this gift and begrudged it, and it was the beginning of the hidden ill-will that he bore to the grey, which afterwards became manifest. Okay. Um, so, this is Kirtan. Now, keep in mind, in the context of this, um, the emphasis, just in the previous paragraph here, was on how most people thought that Saruman was the greater of the two, that he was greater than Gandalf. In fact, even many of the Eldar made that mistake. Um, this helps to explain why Saruman won the election, right? Why he got appointed head of the council instead of Gandalf. We know that Galadriel was in the pro-Gandalf, was, was, you know, was uh, um, stumping for Gandalf in the council election, um, but Saruman won, and a question, I forget how this came up, but I remember us talking about it before, maybe it was in Riddles in the Dark, actually, I don't remember. Um, the question was, how did Saruman ever become head of the council in the first place? Well, he addresses that here, right, that even among the wise, even among the Eldar, there were lots of people who, who genuinely believed that Saruman was greater than Gandalf. Um, that's what's important about this, is that Círdan sees through it, right? He is the one who, from the beginning, perceives that Gandalf is the true power, that his is the most worthy and the greatest um, uh, you know, role in nature among them, and so he gives him the ring, which he says he's just been holding. Um, uh, he's, he's, he's just... That, that, that he's been holding a, as a placeholder. Um, so again, notice how in this text uh, 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 Tolkien has explained a question that we had when we were looking at things earlier on that is why would you give why would you give a ring of power to Kirdan? I think this was in the wasn't this in the, the end of the Return of the King class or was it in the F Silmarillion seminar reunion episode I can't remember which one it was but we were talking about like why do you give Kirdan the ring of fire that that seems really funny um, well Tolkien explains here oh no yeah no it was just a, he was just a just a caretaker at least he thought of himself only as a caretaker of it but notice, as uh, Gerald, yes, as you're emphasizing, um, uh, you know that we, we we are told here that Saruman ultimately fell because of jealousy that he didn't get the ring from Círdan, and went seeking seeking a ring of his own. Yeah, Gerald. I mean, that's, now remember, we've 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 been doing lots of Gandalf and Saruman stuff, right? We 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 saw that in the battles of the Fords of Isen. We saw that, of course, much more in the Hunt for the Ring. We've gotten lots of Gandalf and Saruman material. This essay predates that stuff. Okay, um, so this is a precursor to the, you know, this is before Tolkien went on to write the, the smoke ring confrontation, for instance, between Gandalf and Saruman. So his conception of um, the arising of the, the, the jealousy and the rivalry between um, Saruman and Gandalf um, gets more elaborated over time. But uh, here... We're told that this, um, this again, you know, Gerald, I do link it back to what um, we see, again, in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, that Saruman 
begrudges anybody who, quote, schemed for Gandalf's part, right, thinking of the accusation he levels against Galadriel at the end of The Return of the King. Um, he's, he gets angry at anybody who schemes for, Ga- for Gandalf, um, and in particular seems to have some serious ring envy, right? Um, he's going to make a ring of power for himself to dominate the other rings of power because, darn it, he's the only one who doesn't have a ring of power. Um, so, you know, again, this uh, so much of this essay seems to be designed to sort of connect the dots and fill in the holes um, about wizards that we get in The Lord of the Rings. And again, that makes sense, as that's what it was... Um, uh, that was. Oh, and Faye, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's, uh, that's an excellent point. Faye says, um, but Tolkien emphasizes the begrudging and not the ring, per se, as the cause of the downfall. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, the gr- it's the begrudging, it's the motivation. Um, uh, the, the fall is, is, is not certainly externally forced upon him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so what was Gandalf up to? But the last comer was named among the elves Mithrandir, the Grey Pilgrim, for he dwelt in no place, and gathered to himself neither wealth nor followers, but ever went to and fro in the westlands from Gondor to Angmar, and from Linden to Lorien, befriending all folk in times of need. Warm and eager was his spirit, and it was enhanced by the ring Narya, for he was the enemy of Sauron, opposing the fire that devours and wastes with the fire that kindles and suckers in wan hope and distress." Can I just say, how awesome is it to think back on Gandalf's Shire fireworks display in the in this light, right? Thinking about him as the fire that kindles and suckers in wan hope and distress. Um, I mean, if that doesn't make you uh, see Gandalf's fire, fireworks displays in a new light, I don't know what will. But his joy and his swift wrath were veiled in garments gray as ash. See, this is where I'm getting that link between the grayness and the veiling, right, Um, that I mentioned before. So that only those that knew him well glimpsed the flame that was within. Merry he could be, and kindly to the young and simple, and yet quick at times to sharp speech and the rebuking of folly. But he was not proud, and and sought neither power nor praise. And thus far and wide he was beloved among all those that were not themselves proud, like Faramir. Mostly he journeyed unwearingly on foot, leaning on a staff, and so he was called among the men of the north Gandalf, the Elf of the Wand. For they deemed him, though in error, as has been said, to be of elven kind, since he would at times work wonders among them, loving especially the beauty of fire, and yet such marvels he wrought mostly for mirth and delight, and desired not that any should hold him in awe or take his counsels out of fear. Okay. Um... Yeah, yeah, Sarah, exactly. Gandalf's fireworks, as mentioned from the first pages of The Hobbit. Yeah, exactly. Going back to page four of The Hobbit and Bilbo's memory of the fireworks displays at the old Took's parties. Um, absolutely. I, you know, Again, not only is Tolkien a great reader of his own work, but the way in which he can do this stuff. We talked about that, I talked about this a little bit with the Druidon last time, but the way in which he can, um, he can sort of take something and not change it exactly, not, but recontextualize it in a way which makes us see it in an entirely different light uh, from then on, it's um, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, so, so here's Gandalf. This is, again, this is the sort of backstage view of Gandalf's career. Um, uh, 
the emphasis of how great Gandalf was and who he was and what he accomplished comes at a price, though. Um, this is, of course, the time when the Blue Wizards are being dismissed. I don't even know what their names are, but they probably failed, right? Um, and Saruman, of course, doesn't ever come off looking well, but of course, there's somebody else who gets thrown under the bus, too. Poor Radagast. Indeed, of all the Astari, only one, one only remained faithful, and he was the last comer. For Radagast, the fourth, became enamored of the many beasts and birds that dwelt in Middle-earth, and forsook elves and men, and spent his days among the wild creatures. Thus he got his name, which is in the tongues, a tongue of Numenor of old, and signifies, it is said, tender of beasts. In his footnote to that passage, Christopher Tolkien gives the alternative uh, uh, meaning of Radagast not as a Numenorean name, but as a name in the tongue of the, the, the people of, the, of, of, of northern Rovanian. Again, that sort of quasi-Gothic tongue that they use, um, and says that its meanings are obscure. Um... Radagast. Radagast is a failure. Um, why is Radagast a failure? Because he went native, apparently. He became enamored of the many beasts and birds that dwelt in Middle-earth, and that's bad? Well, no. Forsaking elves and men, that's bad. He spent his days among the wild creatures. This is hard. This is hard. Um, that sentence, I find that sentence uncomfortable. The reason I find it uncomfortable is when I do with it the same thing we were just doing with Gandalf, right? That is, taking the way that he's kind of bringing these things together and summing them up, and then you go back and you look at um, what was said in The Lord of the Rings in the light of what Tolkien said, you know, in, in, in these other things. When I do that here... It doesn't work out very well. Um, the obvious passage to refer to, and I didn't uh, have this typed, but I'm in the Council of Elrond here, um, Gandalf's um, recounting of his trip to Isengard and his meeting with Radagast. Um, Gandalf, of course, says, Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, a master of shapes and changes of hue, and he has much lore of herbs and beasts, and birds are especially his friends. Um... Gandalf certainly seems to speak of with no disdain of those things. Saruman does, of course, calling him scathingly Radagast the Bird Tamer. Um, but, of course, Gandalf has the last laugh there, uh, as with the intervention of the bird, the eagle, who takes Gandalf away. Um, remember Frodo's Song of Lamentation for Gandalf in Lorien, which isn't exactly a song of lamentation, exactly, but anyway, a, 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 a you know a sort of encomium of of Gandalf, and um, he mentions that you know with bird on bow and beast in glen in their own secret tongues he spoke. Right, um, Gandalf is also uh, has much lore of herbs and beasts, um, and is the friend of birds. That too we see from the Hobbit moving forward. Um, Gandalf's words about Radagast being the friend of birds does not make it sound like a bad thing. Um, it's hard. This is hard for me to reconcile. Um, oh, Robert, you're right, of course. Saruman does tame birds, too, with the, the crabine, right? Um, but anyway, 
when I take this passage and I compare it back to the reference in the main text of the body of the Lord of the Rings, it doesn't seem to shed more light on it. It seems to confuse the issue. Gandalf clearly praises Radagast. Gandalf clearly um, admires Radagast for his relationship with beasts and birds. Um, even apart from the fact that Radagast's relationship with birds pulls Gandalf's biscuits out of the fire pretty soon after this, right? Um, so the fact that he's now saying in the later apparatus of The Lord of the Rings that um, Radagast failed and his failure consisted in his uh, excessive devotion to, his, his excessive enamorment with beasts and birds. It's hard, I find those two passages really hard to reconcile. Um, now, how do I understand this? Um, Roy is asking, and it's a good question, do we have any idea who the narrator is here? Is it simply Tolkien? Remember, Roy, this is the same thing I was asking about that same question before, that there seems to be a speaker in an audience, and so I'm certainly willing to believe that there's some kind of frame issue going on here in this text, but but that doesn't seem to me to be exclusively the explanation of things here. That is to say, the overall thrust of the essay on the Astari is praise of Gandalf. That, you know, if I had to take the entire essay and kind of sum up or say, what do I think the main point of this essay is? What 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 really seems to be the message that it is hammering home about the Astari, I, I would say the greatness of Gandalf. And, you know, that what you're to take from this is the significance of Gandalf's role. And so we elevate Gandalf to the exclusion of the Blue Wizards entirely, at the expense of Radagast, and indicating, suggesting that Saruman's enmity and envy of Gandalf was the root of his problem way back when they started projecting backwards the beginning of Saruman's decline and making his envy of Gandalf the root of it. So again, the whole thing becomes extremely Gandalf-centric here um, in the essay on the Astari. That, of course, is much less true when we get into the Valinorian note. Who would go? For they must be mighty, peers of Sauron, but must forego might and clothe themselves in flesh so as to treat on equality and win the trust of elves and men. So notice already we have a kind of a bias in Gandalf's favor, right? We already, you know, it's already been emphasized. One of the things that we've seen emphasized about Gandalf in the text of The Lord of the Rings in the earlier essay on the Astari is that Gandalf did the cloaking thing better, right? That he, 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 uh, um, he, is, he more successfully foregoes might, certainly, than Saruman, though that's a pretty low standard. Um, but anyway, the, he, he does that very well, the foregoing of might and the limiting of himself. But this would imperil them, dimming their wisdom and knowledge and confusing them with fears, cares, and weariness coming from the flesh. But only two came forward. Um, notice that now this is Christopher summarizing. Um, what the note says. But only two came forward, Kurumo, who was chosen by Aule, and Alatar, who was sent by Orome. Um, by the way, this is another one of those moments um, when Christopher Tolkien's editorial practice, though I don't doubt that it produced a smoother final product, um, it makes me want to say, 
give us the whole thing. Please just give us the text and then explain it later if you want to. But don't paraphrase, please, if you can possibly help it. Anyway, sorry. Um, I'm okay. Deep breaths. But two only came forward, Kuromo, who was chosen by Aule, and Alatar, who was sent by Orome. Then Manwe asked, where was Aloran? And Aloran, who was clad in grey, and having just entered from a journey, had seated himself at the edge of the council, asked what Manwe would have of him. Manwe replied that he wished Aloran to go as the third messenger to Middle-earth, and it is remarked in parentheses that Aloran was a lover of the Eldar that remained, apparently to explain Manwe's choice. But Aloran declared that he was too weak for such a task, and that he feared Sauron. Then Manwe said, that it was all the more reason why he should go, and that he commanded Oloran, illegible words follow that seemed to contain the word third, but at that Varda looked up and said, not as the third, and Kuromo remembered it. Um, yeah. Oh, Chaz is asking, are there peers of Sauron and the Vow are sent five? How is that a fair fight? Peers doesn't mean they're exactly equal to him. Um, they're peers of him in the same way that um, you know, all of the Valar are peers of Morgoth. That doesn't mean that they could beat Morgoth in a fair fight one-on-one, -on -one, each one of them. That's demonstrably untrue. Morgoth, in his beginnings, was greater than all of them. Um, but they are still his peers as far as where they are in the larger sense of the hierarchy. That's how I understand that reference there. That it's just as Sauron is a Maya, so those that are sent against him are to be Maiar also. That doesn't mean they're exactly... Um, in his uh, in his weight class. Brian says, I feel like Varda is having a Melian moment. Yeah, yeah, you kind of wonder where she gets that, right? Um, you can see sort of the, um, you know, in this sense, uh, Goadriel is like the spiritual grandmother of Varda, right? She got it from Melian, and Melian seems to have gotten it from Varda. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyhow, um, so... Uh, What do we see here? Aloran being singled out. So again, we have Gandalf in an exalted position, though exalted ironically for being humble, right? Um, we see how retiring he is. We also see that he wears gray even back in Valinor. Um, we see his unwillingness to put himself forward. This shows that he is the perfect candidate. Um, uh, Oloran declares that he's too weak for such a task, and that he feared Sauron. Nolo, nolo episcopari, says, says, says Gandalf. I do not want to be bishop. That's how you know. That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a medieval Catholic thing. Um, how do you know when somebody is, 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 is correct to be put in a position of leadership in the church? When they don't want it. That shows. If they really want uh, a position of authority, that shows that you really should not give it to them. Um, so to, uh, which by the way, I think is, uh, is uh, um, and Tolkien, in one of his letters, quoted that um, Latin phrase, nolo episcopari, um, in a political context, saying that the only people who should be leaders, you know, in the, in the modern political world, equally, are people who don't want it. Um, so anyway, we see Gandalf really passing that test here, and Manway explicitly saying his humility and lack of desire for dominion and, the, you know, lack of um, wanting to be in the spotlight is all the more reason why he should go. By contrast... Kuromo jumps forward right away. He is the first volunteer. Um, so again, we see not necessarily Saruman's fall extending all the way back. This is not to say that Saruman was already bad at heart, right? But that we can see the potential of fall in him, just as 
even before the music of the Ainur, we can see some warning signs in Melkor, right? So, too, we see warning signs here in Saruman. Um, even, and I forget who it was way earlier, like near the very beginning of class, um, one of you, no, I don't think it was, I can't remember who it was, um, was asking about, you know, what is it with Aule and the people of Aule? Um, uh, that they seem to go, I mean, Sauron is one of the, 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 the people of Aule. This, I just go back here to the, the whole, um, the problem with, with sub-creators. Um, uh, the problem with sub-creators is, I, I, we see this from the beginning, the more sub-creative you are, the greater the danger of fun. There's Fanor's problem, right? Sauron's problem, Morgoth's problem, um, you know, they were makers, and there's temptation involved in that. Um, and uh, Arthur, yes, Aule too. Aule too stumbled, he didn't fall, but he stumbled, right? Um, and uh, has to be sort of rebuked, um, by Iluvatar. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a, um, there is a, 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 a clear trend of that, you know, those who are like the more like Iluvatar you are, the more that, um, this sort of that making impulse, you know, that thinking of Tolkien's, uh, poem Mythopoeia, um, you know, being made in the image of a maker. Uh, the more that is true of you, the more dangerous it can be, the more likely it would be that you could fall, um, you know, that you would use that power uh, for your own elevation, um, for your own glorification, as Melkor did during the music. Um, so that's a piece that makes all kinds of sense, right? That's sort of the least surprising identification. But of course, there's 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 more right there's uh there's Radagast um whose name means bird lover who is coming from Yavanna now i Christopher Tolkien is very shy about this he says uh um i didn't quote it for you but he he says you know the identification of Radagast with Yavanna doesn't seem to be quite in keeping with what was said in the essay on the Astari about how he, you know, was too enamored of birds and beasts. That it's kind of hard to imagine one of the one of the Maya of Yavanna um, failing because they paid too much attention to herbs and beasts and birds. Um, like why? Why would this be right? And Neil, exactly. If his name was Bird Lover in the beginning, how could he have strayed by loving birds too much? Yeah. Uh, again, Christopher is very cautious. He's very diffident in talking about these two passages. I myself would go much, much further than Christopher Tolkien does and say that this is a flat contradiction. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it sounds almost like a correction of the previous passage. That here, um, to me, the clearest way to describe this would be a change of mind on Tolkien's part. Um, uh, to me, this amounts almost as a retraction um, of that previous thing. <laughs> Tom says, love not too much <laughs> the birds on your hand. Yeah, or or, on, or under your hat, perhaps. But yes, um, uh, I, I think that um, this is... 
Um, this is this is a, 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 a real shift. And now we're never told whether or not Radagast after after the the clear statement that he failed in the earlier version, we're never told that he succeeds later on, but his downfall is not repeated. Um, that is the 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 assertion of his failure is not is not reiterated after that. But the fact that the cause or the explanation of his failure seems to me to be retracted in these later writings is to me pretty suggestive that perhaps we are being invited um, to uh, to reconsider um, the possibility of Radagast's failure, though so little is said about him later on. Um, another passage from the late notes the, from the 1972 texts. We must assume that they, the Astari, were all Maiar, that is, persons of the angelic order, though not necessarily of the same rank. The Maiar were spirits, but capable of self-incarnation, and could take humane, especially elvish, forms. Now, does this mean that he is retracting what he said before about their being fully incarnated in bodies, or is he now just imagining... Uh, um, is he rethinking that now and saying that they're just they're self-incarnated in the sense in which all the Maiar and Valar can embody themselves in humane, especially elvish forms? That begins to sound more like what the rest of the Valar and the Maiar do, and to make their case a little bit less special. I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's what he's pushing for here, but it seems like that's possible that he was maybe reconsidering that. Saruman is said, e.g. by Gandalf himself, to have been the chief of the Astari, that is, higher in Valinorian stature than the others. Gandalf was evidently in the next in order. Radagast is presented as a person of much less power and wisdom. Doesn't say he fails, just that he is a person of much less power and wisdom. He is a lesser spirit, of course. All of all Maya are not created equal. Some are greater and more powerful and more wise than others. Um, so now notice th- this is a revision or perhaps a clarification of the earlier point. Remember back in the essay on the Astari, um, it's suggested from the beginning that Gandalf was the greatest. That's what Cirdan perceived, right? Ah, you're the one. I'm going to give you the ring, right? Gandalf was always the greatest. Saruman always resented that, and that was kind of where the trouble began. But most people didn't recognize it because Gandalf was so successfully humble and Saruman was so unsuccessfully humble. Everybody thought that Saruman was the greatest, but really Gandalf was the greatest, right? Here, that's being explained. And uh, and in truth, it's another one of those passages in the essay on the Astari that does not fit perfectly with what we get in The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf himself says that Saruman is the greatest of his order, right? Is the chief of his order, that, you know, that, that Saruman is greater than he is. Now, Gandalf is very humble, yes, but there's to be humble is one thing. To lie is another. Um, if Gandalf is going to say untruthfully that Saruman is, is, is greater than he, um, that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of what we see in Gandalf's character. So how would Gandalf's true superiority being unperceived by everybody, that helps to explain why Saruman came to be head of the council, but it doesn't explain Gandalf's attitude towards him. Here in 1972, he goes back and he adds a wrinkle. That does explain it, right? In Valinorian stature. Back back in Valinor, Kurumo is a greater spirit than Oloran. Kurumo, in some 
sense that we don't fully understand and isn't fully explained, outranked Oloran back in Valinor. And therefore, when Gandalf speaks of him, he says quite truly, he's the head of my order, he's greater than I am, he has greater stature than any than any of the rest of us who came over on the boat. But, um, uh, but, but again, but though still, presumably, the the change in per, per, the the discrepancy in perception that everybody believes Saruman to be greater, um, uh, though not everybody, such as Cirdan and Galadriel, um, still seems to still seems to hold true. But again, notice Radagast no longer a complete failure. Um, I am out of time. Um, let me hustle through these. I won't read this last one to you. This passage is focused primarily on the elves and how they've diminished and how Lego has probably achieved least of the nine walkers. Don't tell Orlando Bloom. But anyway, um, uh, the thing about Gandalf here that's most important is the last sentence. Among them, Gandalf, who proved to be the director and coordinator both of attack and defense. So we see Gandalf still here in charge of all of these things. Um, and I'll come back to this one. I'll come back to this one next time. I don't want to rush over this one because this one is really cool. We'll talk about Gandalf and Manway more um, uh, tomorrow, during tomorrow's session. So let me just, uh, at the end here, kind of sum up. I've made a little chart here um, looking at the development of this idea because I want to back up and look at the big picture here. Um, I've broken it into three basic stages that we get in this chapter from you know the, the 54 essay on the Astari, the Valinorian note of somewhere in between, uh, and his late notes in 1972. Um, and to sort of step back and look at the progression of all four of these, lumping the two blue wizards together into one category. Um, and starting with them, notice, you know, with them we get, as I said, the most the most dramatic trajectory. Uh, you know, no name, no business, no precious. <laughs> oh, sorry. No name, no business uh, in 1954. Um, they seem to be implied to have a purpose, and we learn a little bit more about them through their linking with Orome uh, in the Valinorian note, and then uh, in the late notes, not only are they clearly heroes, but they're heroes of the Second Age. They're longer standing. So they're, they're the senior wizards in Middle-earth. So we see the role of the blue wizards dramatically increasing, though we still never learn much in the way of details. But still, the, 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 concept, the story of the blue wizards grows and grows over time. Um, Radagast, his story doesn't grow. If anything, he peters out and almost completely vanishes. Um, and that seems to me, again, given what I see as almost a retraction in the Yavana stuff of what he said in the essay, um, the fact that he's almost completely absent later on, um, you know, I don't know if he intended to go and write a big Radagast clarification or if he wrote that in some other notes that we haven't been given uh, by Christopher Tolkien, but um, uh, but the sort of the silence about Radagast later on um, the, and the fact that his disappearance is not, or not his failure rather, is not reasserted um, is to me suggestive that his story is you know, he was kind of, as I said, sort of thrown under thrown under the bus in the essay on the Astari and he's being um, not dramatically altered in the way that the Blue Wizards are but at least kind of recuperated a little bit over time um, and then with uh, with with Gandalf and Saruman, we see the refinement of their story. Their fundamental story doesn't change, um, but it comes to fit the text better and better. And we 
with each um, with each iteration, we get more and more insight into the fundamental dynamics that we see between Gandalf and Saruman. That is, Gandalf's power, but his humility, and Saruman's greater power, but his much greater pride and arrogance and his consequent envy um, of Gandalf. Um, so anyway, um, that's just sort of a little um, a little overview. Um, let us uh, so we'll we'll reconvene tomorrow afternoon if you can join me tomorrow at four o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Um, we will uh, will uh, I, I, I want to touch on my the my one last slide there and then we'll go and look at some Palantiri stuff. I again encourage you if you have questions that you would like to answer. I've got a, a couple that have been sent in already, um, but not all that many actually. So I would welcome more questions as our last chance to talk about the Unfinished Tales like ever. I'll never talk about Unfinished Tales again. Okay, that's probably not true. But this is the end of the Unfinished Tales class, so if you want me to, to talk about something, make sure to mention it. Um, and um, and I'll try to integrate that into class next time. And then we're off for two weeks, and then it's off into science fiction. So Thank you very much, everybody, uh, and uh, I will look forward to hopefully seeing many of you tomorrow. Good night.